You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Tuesday, happy day after Monday. Uh, happy Jason Whitlock dressed as Run DMC, or am I Jam Master J? What do you think of my Adidas look here on this Tuesday afternoon? I kind of like it. This is kind of old school. This reminds me of like when I was in college. Uh, anyway, fantastic show planned for you today. Uh, Delano Squire is going to be here. Royce White's going to be here. Steve Kim's going to be here. I've got a, a letter that uh, I've written to Brian Cranston, the star of uh, Breaking Bad. You guys know the movie star. Before I do any of that, I want to. Before I get into my letter that I've written to Brian Cranston, I want to give you guys uh, some marching orders, uh, some things that I need you to do uh, for me and for the show and for the movement we're starting. Uh, you have to hit that likes button, and today our goal is 5,000 likes. This is not an aggressive goal. If everybody that watches this video takes the time to hit that like button, it will do us and this movement a great service. You guys know this algorithm is stacked against us. We have to fight against the algorithm by hitting the likes button, and let's set a goal of 5,000. I think we got close to 4,000 yesterday. There's no reason why we can't do better today. So you and everybody you know, get your son, get your daughter, get your dog, get everybody to hit the like button and hop in the comments and leave a comment for the algorithm for me. Comment on my Adidas. And by the way, yes, this is, can you see the, oh, I think the microphone may be in a way. This is a, a McDonald's. Uh, Thing. And no, I'm not sponsored by McDonald's, but this is a McDonald's All-American basketball warm-up. You guys didn't know that I used to be a great basketball player. <laughs> that ain't true. I was decent, though. But uh, anyway, comment in, in the comments. You can comment on my Adidas wear and my McDonald's. Does this does looking at this make me dream of filet of fish sandwiches? Yes, but I'm not going to have one. Uh, anyway, so... Hit the likes, hit the comments. If you're listening on Apple, give me the five-star review. Leave a review of the show. Again, all these algorithms are working against us. You gotta work against them by showing your love of the show. Just use your fingers. That's all you gotta do, a little typing, do a little hitting the like button, hit the five-star review. It's not a lot to ask for you to do to support this show and support a show that supports you and your worldview and our way of life. That way, it'll be easier for me to produce this type of content and write these types of letters to idiots and crackpots like uh, Brian Cranston, the actor. Dear Brian Cranston, uh, my childhood was great. We lived in the ghetto. 
Hope and joy filled the tiny apartment I shared with my brother and mother after my parents divorced. High school was even better. I captained a nationally ranked undefeated football team. My senior year, I shared a one bedroom, 400 square foot apartment with my dad. I earned a football scholarship to Ball State University. The five years spent on campus comprised many of my fondest memories. I would do those five years over and over again until eternity. The two decades I spent as a newspaper journalist in Bloomington, Indiana, Rock Hill, South Carolina, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Kansas City, Missouri were tremendous. I started at the bottom working part-time for $5 an hour and became one of the most successful sports writers of my generation. America was great for me from 1967 until about 2012. Brian Cranston, I'm black. Both my parents are black. Their parents were black too. I'm 55 years old. When I hear former President Donald Trump and his supporters say, make America great again, I don't interpret that as nostalgia, as some subtle or overt racism. I hear it as a call for a return to sanity, a return to a time when America at least pretended to judge man by the content of his character. Ryan, I saw some of your interview with CNN's Chris Wallace, the exchange where you claim the, the slogan, make America great again, is some sort of bigoted dog whistle. Take a listen. When I, when I see the, the make America great again, my comment is, do you, do, you, do you accept that that could possibly be construed as a racist remark? It, it, Cranston continued, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but Chris Wallace should have stopped you right there, Brian. Only someone on a 24-7, 365 hunt for racism would hear that slogan and think it's racist in nature. Bill Clinton said the exact same thing in 1991 when he launched his bid to win the White House. Clinton is fondly referred to as the first black president, but he's also the first presidential candidate to say make America great again. Take a listen. Pain to make us strong at home and abroad. I ask you to join with us today to give me your hands and your hearts, to give me your prayers, and your help. I believe that together we can make America great again. And with your help, your heart, your devotion, and your efforts, we can build a community of hope that will inspire the world. God bless you and thank you very much. So uh, Brian, as you can see in that recap, Bill Clinton was not and is not black. He's a stereotypical politician, a man unafraid to distort reality for his own benefit. To you, once Trump adopted the slogan, MAGA became a Confederacy cold word. Brian, you and Bill Clinton are both actors. You feign concern for black people while seducing us with lies. Your statements to Chris Wallace come off as condescending and racist. Listen to what else you had to say. And most people, a lot of people go, how could that be racist? Make America great again? I said, so just ask yourself from, from an African-American experience, 
When was it ever great in America for the African-American? When was it great? So if you're making it great again, it's not including them. It's including me. I'm black. There's other people that think like me that are black as well. Brian, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but as of 2020, roughly one in 10 black people living in America migrated here from Africa. That's 10% of all black people in America migrated here from Africa. In 1980, it was only 3%. So Brian, just understand this. So the plight of black people in America is so miserable that real black Africans are choosing to immigrate to this country by choice, not by slave ship. And yes, I call them real black Africans because I'm not. I'm a black American. I don't know how far my roots stretch back or even if they stretch back to Africa. That's something I've been told. That's something that's been popularized by Jesse Jackson. He came up with the term African-American. Before that, we were just black Americans or we were Negroes. America is and has been the safest, most prosperous, most opportunity rich land for black people for at least the last 60 years. That's why Africans and other black people from around the globe choose to relocate here. They want what I experienced in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Freedom, an opportunity derived from the greatest constitution ever written. They have no interest in debating whether men have periods or can get pregnant. They wanna compete on the most level playing field in the world. They may not be Christians, but they want what Christianity created. America stopped being great, I'd say a decade ago. Social media accelerated American culture's descent into wokeness and secularism. America turned demonstrably hostile to a biblical worldview and patriarchal leadership. It prioritized victimhood over victory. It stopped pursuing equality of opportunity in favor of equality of outcome, equity. Equity is the gateway drug to mass corruption. Equity fuels entitlement. It sends people on a search to discover what makes them worthy of special consideration. Equity is at the root of identity politics, gender dysphoria, and racial division. Equity is Utopia's Bible. Utopia is the left's favorite nonsensical conspiracy theory. They're determined to create it around the world. Brian, you don't believe black people can compete in the system George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Ben Franklin designed. You babbled at the beginning of your rant as if America's founding fathers invented slavery. They inherited the planet-long institution and wrote a constitution that made its demise inevitable. Their foresight and the sacrifice of many others over two centuries made America great. Not perfect, great. I lived in that America. I was raised to believe I could accomplish anything I wanted here. 
My dad didn't graduate high school. My mom was a factory worker. Union labor and manufacturing jobs made it possible for them to raise two boys who achieved parts of the American dream. My brother joined the Air Force, graduated from college, has been married for over 20 years, a high-end executive at Ford Motor Company. He owns a nice home in a nice neighborhood. Many people want that America back, a country that allows two parents with nothing more than a good work ethic to lift their children to a better life. Life doesn't get any better than that. Instead, manufacturing jobs have left this country and America caters to global corporations that favor China and a Marxist worldview. America cares far more about what's best for elite celebrities than working class families. That frustration is at the root of the Magna movement, MAGA movement. It's willful ignorance to pretend otherwise. Sincerely, Jason Whitlock. Brian, I hope that helps. All your virtue signaling, all your uh, pretending that you have some kind of concern for black people, you don't. You don't think we can compete without you bending over and handing us a crutch. My father didn't need it, my mother didn't need it, I didn't need it, my brother didn't need it, my stepsister didn't need it. We don't need to be pandered to. And you need to quit lying on people that just want America to return to sanity. Because open your eyes, open your ears. We're debating whether men with penises can have babies. And you're wondering why people want to return to a more sane time? There's no mystery here. This place is nuts. And people don't want it to be nuts. They don't want their children growing up with drag queens at their second and third grade libraries. That's my fire. That's my letter to Brian Cranston. That is why, I'm gonna keep this tight because we're gonna bring Royce White in. Uh, that's why I need you guys to come here April 15th and join us at the Roll Call event. Go to fearlessarmyrollcall.com. Need you guys here. Send me your notes, emails. Uh, tell them you signed up and you'll be here uh, April 15th to help us as we inspire men to live up to our duties. Bearing witness requires courage, not perfection. Voice wife. Atheists, the secular world, the culture uses our imperfection, our sins to take, shut up. You, you're, you can't stand on truth. And if all it was was imperfection, it eliminated us from standing on truth, this would be a very quiet place. I'm trying to be as loud as I can and as transparent as I can to try to inspire other men we know you're imperfect, you know you're imperfect. God's grace and mercy, mercy gives you the right to stand on his truth and to speak that loudly into the culture, and we, we have to do that. You can look around and say, these guys have taken over everything. They own the CDC, the NIH, they got the president. Is transgender 
surgery for children. Colleges today are nothing but leftist indoctrination centers working fully against the Bible. What's the alternative? So you're gonna stop fighting today and you're gonna let the government raise your kids? And you're gonna turn around and let them chop off your 12-year-old daughter's breasts and let them sterilize your son and tell him that he's a girl? And you're gonna let them make the Bible hate speech? You're the last line of defense here because nobody else is gonna do it and God's gonna walk with you. This is literally worth dying for. Absolutely. I'm telling you, so it's like everybody, that's a nice little metaphor. This is it. If there's a hill to die on, this is it. The Overton window has been moved right in front of our children's bedrooms. And there are all types of people that are trying to climb up in the ladder. And every good father should be on his post so that when they peek their head up over the, the window sill, you kick the ladder back down, let them know, you, you move on to the other house because we're not playing that around here. Sometimes just standing up, just saying no, we're not going to do that. Not my marriage, not my kids, not my family, not my community, not my church, not my city. Just declaring that, that's victory enough. In prepping his disciples, he tells Peter, he's like, listen, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. We're gonna face some ups and downs in life and we're not gonna always get it together. But if we stay on the path, if we stay chasing after, running after Jesus, running after his way, he's even praying for us. Now, I, I like it when you pray for me, Jason and TJ, I appreciate that, but to have Jesus pray for me, that makes me feel pretty good. When you make it through this sifting process, go back and strengthen your brothers. So we all have a responsibility as men. Once he's delivered me through this, I have a responsibility to go back and bring some other folk out. You do a roll call to just let people know you're not alone, be confident in your positions, and we're gonna inspire you. We're gonna eat, fellowship, listen to some music. It's gonna be the first of many roll calls that we do. So we're looking for soldiers. We're gonna put on our best uh, recruiting pitches for soldiers. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. All right, little change of plans. We're going to go to Delano Squires first, not Royce. Royce is delayed a little bit by traffic. Uh, so Delano uh, will roll out to Washington, D.C. and bring in Delano. Delano, uh, Brian Cranston's interview with uh, Chris Wallace really irritated me. Hmm. And, and, but I'm trying to check my sanity. And so when you hear people say, make America great again, do you think they're talking about going back to slavery or Jim Crow, or do you hear something else? No, no I don't, Jason. Um, the people who make that argument to me, particularly when it comes from people like Brian Cranston, 
Um, I put him in the same category as the Tim Wises of the world, the Robin DiAngelo's. These are white knights who have a ton of unresolved guilt, and they think that it is their God-given right to speak on behalf of black communities. And, and when I say white knights, I'm trying to paint the picture of a knight mounted on his horse who passes by the lane and sees uh, serfs, right, peasants, paupers, sort of on the ground, working with their hands, um, you know, picking vegetation, and he says, I'm going out to fight on behalf of you. When in my mind, he's not on the horse, and I'm not on the ground, and to the extent that there are issues and, and problems in this country, I'm open to fighting with anyone with a similar set of values, morals, and principles. But Brian Cranston doesn't think that way because he thinks that black folk are beneath him um, and the black folk on the other side who welcome his comments are people who believe that as it relates to the black American story, um, black Americans themselves are the object of that story and not the subject. It's always about what has been done to us. And really that makes white people the, the, the central figure, the protagonist in this story. Um, and when you write yourself out of your own autobiography, then you're gonna have trouble sort of making heads or tails of the world. I hear people like Brian Cranston and, and I go, man, I think this guy thinks black people aren't capable of happiness unless white people are directly involved. And, and mm. if, if, you know, if black people have a party and it's all black and they're celebrating mm -hmm. and have a good time, oh, you know how much more fun it would be if white people were there? And that's just not the way, Again, there were parts of my life where I grew up very poor in the hood. There were parts I grew up that were working class, neighborhoodish, and then back to parts of my life that were hood. But I, I was happy in any environment as a child mm -hmm. because I, I felt relatively safe and I felt loved and supported. I had a good time. I had a, a, a a great childhood, and, and I know I'm 15, 20 years older than you, but I'm wondering if, if, if you have similar thoughts of your childhood. Oh, absolutely. I, I never complain about my childhood. I mean, my, my parents got married young. They were probably, uh, when I was born, they were probably, my mom was probably 21, my dad was 24. They didn't have a lot of money. They lived with my aunt um, for at least close to a year after after I was born. So, I mean, we didn't have a lot. You know, my parents went to school at, at night and they just worked to try to provide a, you know, a, a better set of opportunities for, for myself and my, and my sister. But I never felt like I wanted for anything in my childhood. And even though we didn't have necessarily the material possessions that, you know, you roll the clock forward that, that we have now, to your point, I, I felt loved. Um, I felt protected, I felt safe in, in my immediate family and my larger village, which included you know, extended relatives, church family. And um, I, I had a great childhood. And, I, and Jason, here's the thing. I never, I never once thought to myself, man, if I was white and middle class and I lived out in Long Island, my, my childhood would be so much better. 
and and that's one of the things that I that I dislike so much about leftism or wokeness or whatever you want to call it is that it sows seeds of ingratitude. So instead of a person being grateful for what they have and what they've earned, their first instinct is always to say, but I could have so much more if only I was a different skin color or sex. I've, I've actually had a friend tell me, I'm not gonna say which one of the three, he knows, but I had one of my friends tell me, well, if Oprah was white, she would have gotten even further than she did. And I'm saying to, to, to him, I'm just like, you don't understand human nature, right? Because, and I know this is this is a slight tangent. Um, you may have seen some of the criticism of Deion Sanders' comments that we went over about a week and a half ago, but that hunger produces something. And, and when you feel like you have to scrap and scrape and fight for everything that you earn, oftentimes those people go much further than those who are comfortable and, and don't have the same need to, to, to fight and be hungry and be dogged in terms of their, and their level of determination. So no, I, I, I've never once thought to compare my upbringing to somebody else of a different ethnicity because I've, I've always been a contented person. I know we're just speculating here about what your friend thinks, but what does he think would have been added to Oprah's life? What is she missing? Who is the talk show, the white talk show host that did more than Oprah? Is it Martha Stewart? I don't know who, is it Barbara Walters? Is it, who is it? Is it Katie Couric? I, I, don't, I don't know who, I thought Oprah as far as talk show host, male or female, could you do any better? Well, I think part of it is the notion that because being white is a privilege, and that's the way I hear it whenever people talk about white privilege, I, I say to myself, oh, you're saying that being white is a privilege. I think it's the notion that whatever marginal privilege that accrues if someone were to switch from black to white would always move that person forward. So if Oprah is worth 10 billion now, she'd be worth 15 billion if she was a white person. And Jason, what, what, th this, there's something underlying that. And I, and I think it's worth putting a fine point on it. And I would, I would argue that what is underneath that, the, the seed, the kernel that, you, that is in that idea is the notion that white people really are superior. That to me is the, is the uh, most dangerous white superiority complex that is in our culture now. It's the one that says whatever white people think and, and believe and say and do is always superior to what black people think and say and do. Um, because a, a significant part of the people in our community and oftentimes, uh, generally speaking, white liberals actually do believe that. This, to me, you can see an element of this with, with the comments from the guy, Scott Adams, about, you know, wanting to tell white folks to move away from black people. And I ask myself, why should I care what he says? Uh, honestly, what, I don't, man does, black man does not live by, uh, by bread alone, but by the words of every, that come out of every white man's mouth. That, that is how the, the modern black left thinks today, right? So this is why, and I use this example online, when Don Imus, you know, in media and journalism for a number of years, when he called the Rutgers basketball, uh, female basketball team, a bunch of nappy-headed 
holes, he was pilloried and fired and shunned. But when, and I said, when Snoop Dogg has said, well, we don't love them hoes for the better part of 30 years, he became a global icon. And I think you, you see this play out all the time. When Joe Rogan makes some silly jokes and says the N-word, or some college professor reads some rap lyrics or reads, you know, Huck Finn and reads the N-word, black folk lose their minds. But when we pump that music into our heads day after day for 25 years, I say, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. And I, and I think that's why people like Brian Cranston feel like they have a right to speak on these issues um, is because they get that message from us that what you say, Mr. Cranston, matters a lot more than what we say about ourselves. You've just taken me to a higher level of my thought on this in terms of, because one, I was going like, Brian Cranston has some white superiority feelings, and he's like, uh, <laughs> Denzel has some success, but he ain't had that white success that I had, and right. if, he, if right. he had this kind of success, he'd be, but now I'm gonna flip to the other side and say, he has that feeling of superiority because we give it to him. Correct. We basically tell him that, oh, Brian, I went to Brian's house and he, he served me some ice water and his ice Way is colder. so much colder than Denzel's water, ice water. I had mm -hmm. ice water at Denzel's house. It wasn't nearly as cold as Brian mm -hmm. Cranston. We tell Brian Cranston that he is superior and he, he, that's how he acts. Like he's superior, it's like, how can, it hasn't been great here in America. Yes, it's been great for me, but you know my peers in Hollywood that have had the same careers as me, Bill Cosby, or you know Cosby's a bad name to throw out, but Will Smith, he, mm -hmm. any of these other television stars, whatever. Boy, if they were white, they just what what their life would be like if they were me. But that's how we act around Brian Cranston. So I don't know Correct. if I can be mad at him for thinking that. Yeah, because ultimately, and Jason, we, we talked about this. This was back in 2021 when we first began started. And I said, yeah, we're, we're to the point now where, where we have fixed as many of the laws as we could in terms of legalized discrimination against um, black folk, right? I'm not talking about uh, disparate outcomes. I'm talking about the ability to legally say no dogs or blacks allowed. So we fixed that. But what we haven't fixed is our sense of self-worth, our sense of identity, that, that part of us that longs to be given attention and affirmation from white people. And that longing is stronger in people who have a tough exterior of saying, well, I don't care what the white man says. Those are the same people that demand that white people post black squares that demand that they say black lives matter, that demand that they care about every, you know, police shooting that happens in, in, in Baltimore, New York City or Philadelphia. So th there is that sense in which th there's an element within the black community. And, and even this goes back to an issue that we talk about, because oftentimes when we talk about fatherlessness, we, we think about um, the resource deprivation that it brings. Right. Kids grow up poor, much more likely to grow up poor. They raised by a single mother. But, but fathers also give a child their name, 
and they give them a sense of affirmation. Brothers may compete with one another and they want to impress one another, but a child looks for affirmation from his father. And when you see black folk who are constantly begging white people to affirm them and give them attention, and sometimes that attention is just like a child. I, I, I got a bunch of young kids in my house. Sometimes they say, Daddy, will you come and wrestle with me? And sometimes what they do, they throw stuff. They throw tantrums. They say, look at me, look at me. It's, it's the same seed. They, they both, both instances, they want attention from their father. And what I'm saying is the black folk who, who act this way, who in the summer of 2020 were telling people, you need to go get that Robin D'Angelo white fragility so you could understand how you can be, uh, be, be an ally in this work for racial justice. They're crying out for their fathers because when a community is bereft of that, of that male leadership and that affirmation and that sense of belonging and purpose, they will go looking for it wherever it can. And unfortunately, as I've said, in our community, we think the two biggest problems facing us are uh, income inequality and systemic racism. And that's why we, we think the solutions are bigger government and better white people. But part of what you get from the government and white people in, in the, the narrative that I'm framing is also the affirmation. It's the government saying, I see you, you're important to me. Here's a check. It's white, random white folks who you do not know. You live in inner city Philadelphia and you're pressing your case to some white woman in Iowa that she needs to affirm your life. It's because you want her to say, I see you, you matter to me. Because that's what really matters to you. Because when the rapper who comes from your neighborhood in North Philadelphia says, shoot them up, smack them hoes, kill them niggas, all of that stuff, you say, oh, this is really good music. I love this culture. But if a white woman says, I'm not really interested in Beyonce's music, you'll say, oh my goodness, she hates black people. That's a child crying out for his father. And at a certain point, we're gonna have to deal I, with I that. Think, yeah, I think about Days Loves and her song, Tribe Me, where she says, I hate N-words, I'm a Nazi. And, and people, oh, it's one of the great female rap songs of all. And, and, mm. and I'm thinking about, she did that in a celebrate. She's next. She's going to be the next biggest thing in rap female. This Dilbert guy, Scott Adams, says in jest, tongue in cheek, as a, as a Twitter take, hey, uh, I don't want to live in black neighborhoods or I'm trying to. And everything, he, he gets the Kanye treatment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they wipe him completely out. He's ostracized from polite society. He must go. It's an amazing contrast. And, and this next thing I'm going to ask you is just kind of obvious. Bill Clinton's a politician. Politicians will say anything. Mm -hmm. But it, it is funny to look at him launch his 1991 campaign for presidency by saying, you know, together we can make America great again. And mm -hmm. then come back, you know, years later, I think in 2016, he's on camera saying that, uh, it's a dog whistle. Uh, I, look, yeah, that. Uh, yeah, I think we had the clip. He, here he is talking about Donald Trump and and what "Make America Great Again" means. Now that Donald Trump's saying it. Where I'll give you America Great Again is if you're a white Southerner, you know exactly what it means, don't you? <laughs>
what it means is, I give you the economy you had 50 years ago, and I'll move you back up on the social totem pole and other people down. Bill Clinton's a white Southerner, so he is an expert on this, but I, it just, for, for people to be acting like they don't get what people are talking about, it's just mm. willful ignorance or it's just a political ploy. And, and as it relates to Brian Cranston and these movie stars, I, I, just, I just think they're just, they're following a script. I, I'm not sure if Brian Cranston even knows what he believes. Yeah, I, I, Jason, I'm, I try to be a good Christian in these conversations, but I have a lot of distaste and disdain and contempt for these people. And part of the reason I, I do is not because of what they say and how it makes me feel. It's because I live in a community, small community and a larger sort of ethnic cultural sort of milieu, right? Where I see the impact that these words have on people. I see that you can take a college-educated black person who has never missed a a meal in their entire life, who has a six-figure job and more degrees than a thermometer, who pays Hispanic women, right? uh, 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 Let's say this this woman I'm talking about pays Hispanic women to come and clean their house, who get their nails done by Vietnamese tech, who get their mail delivered by a white man with a a high school education. And when these politicians, the, the Bidens and the Clintons speak, and they make it seem as if with the wrong vote, you're going to go back to Selma, 1964. They terrify these women. And unfortunately, many of the men who have lost their killer instinct and are comfortable being domesticated. These are people whose first response is, man, you heard what Trump said? You heard what Trump or any white person? You heard what the white, the random white person said? And I'm saying, what is wrong with y'all? That's, that's, that's what I say to the people that I know. But to the, to, to the Clintons of the world, I'm saying you, 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 you are doing what you think is something positive and moral, but you're doing psychological harm to, to a lot of the people that I know personally. And this is the Selma syndrome at its worst. It's trying to convince black people that we are never more than two steps from the plantation and that the only way that we can keep from going back into a history of oppression and degradation and discrimination is to vote for people like Bill Clinton and, and Joe Biden. People who, like Joe Biden, actually was friends with members of the Ku Klux Klan. That's, that's who they think. And for many of the people in our community, they, they hear it and they get it and they say, yes, Donald Trump, his words are an existential threat to the black community. So we will vote for Democrats And part of what we're going to do is kill our offspring, because that is really the way to beat white supremacy once and for all. It doesn't make any sense, but that's where we are. Thank you, D. Great job as always. All right, you guys go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. We need 5,000 likes today. I'm not asking much. It'll take you a half a second. Uh, Then I'm asking you to, we need 1,500 comments. That'll take you like 30 seconds. That's all you need to do to help us get this show more viral and more traction. Be a good fearless soldier. Hit the likes, leave a comment, hit the notifications, hit subscribe. Royce White, next.
let's roll out to Minneapolis, bring in Morpheus, Royce White. Royce, uh, Brian Cranston has said that, uh, you know, make America great again is a call that black people won't understand or will think it's a call to go back to the days of slavery. When you hear the MAGA chant, how do you interpret it? Um, you know, th this is just a common uh, liberal trope of of a nationalist populist movement that is a, a genuine threat to the longstanding political ideology of, of the Western world and in America and corrupt American politics. So, you know, when I think of make America great again, I understand that despite all of the flaws of our country and its history, um, America's inception was a was a, a significant shift from the industrial track that the Western world was on. We stopped and we said, hey, you know, the industrial revolution is fine. Uh, technology is fine. Uh, business is fine. But there has to be a moral center and there has to be a moral uh, governance of, of our society or else our societies will crumble. And, and our society is crumbling right now. So, you know, make America great isn't let's go back to the, the 50s when, when things were segregated or let's go back to the, you know, the, the 1600s or 1700s when we were in chains. Uh, anybody who's suggesting that is, is completely dishonest and they know what they're doing. I, I agree. I also think that where people will split hairs is, well, how do you define greatness? Well, and some people, America was never great because, of, and, and so I have a more, I think, nuanced, mature view of like greatness and happiness are defined by expectations. And so I think of my upbringing in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, like, man, that was great. And it was from talking to my parents and grandparents, so much better than what they experienced. And I just felt gratitude for their sacrifice and for being born at the time that I was. And so do I, I've never thought and never will think America's perfect, <laughs> but I do think in comparison to where we are right now, this highly secular culture, there was yep. a time in the 70s, 80s and 90s where sure felt great to me in comparison to what we have right now. Well, let, let's let's be even more granular. If we want to look at the spiritual aspect and the Christian aspect, this, this this entire Western civilization was built upon heresy. And I've said that before. You had the scientific method. That was a heresy. Democracy itself was a heresy. Computer technology, major heresy. Artificial intelligence, the ultimate heresy. Um, so the, the West was built upon fundamental heresies. Uh, the, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, from a political standpoint, from a governance standpoint, what, what should a nation aim to be? Right. What what is it rightful for a nation to aim to be moral? Yes, of course. And we become greatly immoral, but also independent. And there was a time in American history when we had some independence and, and you can't have freedom without independence. You can't have freedom without access or without free will. Now, was there a racial animus that existed during that time? Of course, nobody with any sense would would deny that. But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, in the 60s and 50s, the, the, the racial tension in this country and the racial relationship between blacks and whites was at a place where we, we didn't want it to be and where it shouldn't have been. But minus that, 
America as a nation had independence. We had genuine independence in manufacturing. We had genuine independence in in in, in energy and, and other things of, of essential nature. Um, and, and we've lost that. And so what what happened is we took civil rights, we took the race relations and we said, oh, because race relations is bad, the entire fundamental uh, foundation of our entire Western American society is wrong. That was that was an, a mistake. It was a mistake for those that let us be tricked. And it was intentional for those that wanted to do it. And, and this is the managed decline of your D.C. elites, your Nancy Pelosi's, your Joe Biden's, your Mitch McConnell's, all of your 30, 40 year politicians there on the Hill that understood the narrative and they understood how to rob the American people in a decline and use race relations to do it. That's what's happened. It's very simple. The other thing I hear, Royce, that I, can they argue race relations are worse now than in the 1980s and 90s, in my view. There's more racial tension now, and so it's like whatever Brian Cranston and the left think they've got cooked up, it ain't better than what we had. And it, it looks a lot worse, it feels a lot worse. People are at each other's throats, and, and you know, Scott Adams, the Dilbert cartoonist, is being sarcastic over social media, but he's also being honest and being like, hey man, it's high risk as a white person to engage with black people because again, they don't know what anything they say can and will be used against them in the court of public opinion. And it's okay, the society has made it okay for black people to express public animus towards white people. This is the society the left has cooked up and it's worse than what I was experiencing in the 70s, 80s and 90s. I, I just, if they had something better, put it on the table. They don't have something better. So STFU is my reaction. Well, well, look, maybe I'm fortunate that I grew up in a very diverse place, and I don't mean to use diverse as a way to pander to the left or any of this fake woke politics, but I genuinely grew up here in the Twin Cities in a diverse inner city community. You know, I got Norwegian blood. I got Mexican blood. I got black blood. I, you know, so we grew up in a, in a sort of melting pot sort of a, a neighborhood. And, and that neighborhood, if you ask the elders of our neighborhood, whether they be Irish, German, Irish, Catholic, uh, Protestant, uh, black, white, Latino, whatever the kid, Jewish, Polish, doesn't matter. If you ask them about the race relations before the 1980s, they'll tell you, that race relations were better. Now, I didn't grow up in that era, so I can't really speak to that. What I will say is two things are happening at once with that narrative. There was a way that the law was laid out. There was a way that race relations looked on on paper in legislation. And then there was the cultural significant. There was the cultural relations of race. Now, those are two different things. Right. And again, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. One got better that we can measure, although it was weaponized, right? Affirmative action, the welfare state, all of those things came as a Trojan horse with the improvement of race on paper legislatively. However, I would argue that right after the Civil Rights Act in the 70s, 
race relations were at their peak in terms of positive interaction between communities. We had breaking the barrier, Martin Luther King, Malcolm, and the whole movement had breaking certain barriers culturally just for the federal government and a corrupt D.C. elite to, to put their hands in, grab a hold of it, and weaponize it. So, you know, it, it's hard for me to say that race relations are categorically worse today. It, it's hard for me to say that. What I will say is that our intelligence community, the greatest war being waged against the American people culturally is the race info war. And, and you're right. When, when, when white people feel like they can't just speak the truth because of this baked in Marxist university race narrative, it creates tension. It creates uncertainty. It creates distrust. Um, at, at the same time, I think people are over exaggerating. And I, I don't mean to you know go, go against what you're saying, but I come from a place no, I where I, I interact with white people all the time. And the white people I'm around feel totally comfortable having these conversations. I think that there is a there is a, a silent majority out there that's speaking to a a, a lack of um, a lack of clarity and a certain fear that they have about the zeitgeist. Right. The zeitgeist is the German word for the spirit of the times. And I get it because they're watching TV and they're seeing Rachel Maddow and Joy and Reed and these riots. And they're saying, ah, you know, I can't talk about being I can't talk. I can't talk honestly from a white person's perspective. But when you run into the majority of black people out there, me, you, Shamika, the people from my neighborhood, my grandparents, when we run into white people and they want to have conversations about things that are true, I don't see a, a major backlash or uh, uh, an animus towards them. What I will agree with are there's some psychopaths out there, whether they're radical Marxist leftists or they're brainwashed with with gangster hip hop that tells you to do zannies and shoot your enemies. When you run into those people, yeah, you, you should be worried in general, no matter what you talk about. And you should worry about those people if you're black as well. But um, I have great interactions with white people. And, and you know, I, I think that the, the country is ready for the healing. Let's just say it like that. The country is ready to heal the rift between blacks and whites. There's just a, a, a middleman not letting it happen. I, I, I think you're right to some degree, because I think people's perspectives are skewed, I think, not just from TV, from social media. Social media will have you believe that there's a constant race war being on and you better wear a bulletproof vest when you, before you yeah. go outside. I, I agree with that. And and er, there were years early on when this was going on that I would be like, hey man, anytime I go anywhere, and it's still the case, anytime I go, I'm treated wonderfully. If you follow <laughs> social media, you would think that I just got thousands of people following around me, trolling me, saying crazy things to me. But I'm talking about, Anywhere I go in the country, out in public, I'm treated well. I, so I say that, but I also know that with certain leftist friends, whether black or white, mm -hmm. I, and I could care less. I, I disagree with their politics, but I still love them and still would prefer to engage with them. They want nothing to do with engaging with me. I've lost friends, leftist friends, who want nothing to do with me because of my biblical beliefs and because, you know, I refuse to run around acting like Donald Trump is my God and that, uh, you know, he's the worst human being on the planet. That, that's, uh, I, I, I've had several 
liberal white friends who just have no interest in communicating with me because of that. And that, that's what makes me say, this is worse. You know, I, I can care less about their stupid thoughts. I still love them and would love to be friends with them. They, they won't touch me with a 10-foot pole. Oh, okay. Well, in, in, that, in that respect, I 100% agree with you. At the extremes, it's far worse, right? Or let's say, not at the farthest extremes where things get violent, because I think there was a time in American history when the, 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 the expression of violence along racial animus was, was more explicit and it was more directly about race relations. Um, I think now when your average uh, middle-aged white woman gets robbed and, and, and tragically shot and killed by a young black man who, who, you know, is high or perked up or whatever he's doing. I don't think that that's really race related so much. I don't think that a lot of the violence that we see is so, so predicated on race more so than it is predicated on people being psychopaths and, and high and, and delusional and, you know, brainwashed from social media and disconnected from any real humanity and, and any real sanity. Um, but at the extremes, from a cultural standpoint, civilly, I would say that we're more polarized than we've ever been. And people are making hard line, uh, um, drawing hard lines around their political affiliations. I would say the, the politicization of, of common folk, not people who are committing crimes, not people who are part of some type of organization, just common everyday people. The, the, the politicization of our culture is at an all-time high. You're either for Donald Trump or you're not. You either vote Democrat or you don't. You're either a racist or you love black people, LGBTQ, and all women. It's very hard line in that regard. I agree. So I think there could be people on, that could be making an argument about me that like, hey, I, I, I love Jason, but you know, he really doesn't want to be bothered with me because my funny bone issue is I can't stand anybody that has a sense of entitlement. Yeah. Any, anybody that feels like they're owed something, that's poison or that the bug spray off makes me run away from people that are entitlement or eventually just looking for an opportunity to take advantage of me, you, or whoever they can. And so I bet you there's some friends of mine that would say, oh man, Whitlock, because of politics or whatever, you know, I don't hear from him or he don't bother with me. And it's, it's really, I'm reacting to a culture that has radicalized people to a point of entitlement that I'm just like, no, I don't want that energy around me. I don't want to be around them. And so when I hear Scott Adams talk about who he does and shouldn't be around or whatever, you know, he he colorized it, but most, he's talking about entitlement because there's nothing about my upbringing or family that, that has anything to do with entitlement. It's all about go get and no excuses. You know, I just didn't grow up with my parents telling me that racism was going to stop me from doing a damn thing. Only thing that was going to stop me is me being lazy and not getting up out of the bed and doing what I'm supposed to do. And so uh, that's we're colorizing these things, but we have a culture of entitlement that's being installed. And there are people, I think, like myself and people that are saying, make America great again 
that are like, they, they just reject this entitlement culture. Well, yeah, entitlement's one of the most dangerous things a person can embrace. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, it, 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 this is a slippery slope, right? I mean, we, we got to, this, these things are complex and, and the complexity of them have been weaponized against the, the average mind of your, you know, everyday American citizen. So in one respect, um, you have a citizenship. Your citizenship was outlined in the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. And, and, and with that, there are certain things you should come to expect. There are certain things that you are entitled to. They're called rights for a reason. You have a right to them and they were given to you by the one true creator. So in, in some ways you are entitled to things. The question is, what do you believe you're entitled to? And what is the premise of your entitlement? Is the premise of your entitlement radical materialism or is it an agrarian Judeo-Christian worldview? And those two things will bring two different expectations and two different, uh, you know, two different types of entitlement. Um, and, and I think Malcolm, you know, for any criticism that exists for Malcolm X, he laid this out perfect. And I always go back to this example, but I find it so profound that he and Thomas Jefferson from two totally different times in, in history and two totally different perspectives came to the same conclusion. The price of freedom is death. And, and I think what they're trying to say in that is your freedom can't be somebody else's responsibility. When you depend on somebody else for your freedom, you can't have it. You don't deserve it. And you, first off, you can't have it, but you really don't even deserve it. You're too weak. You're too cowardly to deserve that freedom. Um, so, you know, yes, we have rights and we should never, never allow our government or our presiding institutions to, to sell us, give us wood nickels, right? We should never accept wood nickels from our elites and from our governing institutions, but we have to clarify our will and make sure that what we want, what we're entitled to is actually something that's righteous and, and, and American or, or, you know, godly. Royce, uh, plug your show and then we'll let you go. Yeah, please call me crazy. Uh, we air 9 p.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, and I appreciate the Fearless Army and all the feedback we're getting. We're off to a, a good start. And, and we look to see you there at 9 p.m. On, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Thank you, Royce. Great job. All right, you guys do your job. Hit the likes, get in the comments. 5,000 likes, 1,500 comments. That's what we need from you today. Do your job. Thank you. Appreciate it. You can email me and us. Show at gmail.com. Love to hear from those of you that are joining us here on April 15th. Love to hear from those of you that have given to Preborn and supported some of our other sponsors like Patriot Mobile. Love to hear from those of you uh, that uh, understand that uh, Coach JB, Jason Brown, owes me an apology. And I, I thank you so much for sending in those emails of support of me. I don't know what happened uh, yesterday, why his screen kept freezing up, why he left the show uh, you know, abruptly the way that he did yesterday, but uh, I appreciate those of you on my side in this that have been sending me those emails. Thank you. Uh, it, it warms my heart. Uh, we'll be back with Steve Kim next. All right, welcome back. 
Uh, time to roll out to Los Angeles, bring in the Korean co-sell, Steve Kim. But before we do that, I want to remind you all that little thing you need to do for me and the Fearless Army and the Fearless Movement, it doesn't cost you anything. Hit the likes button if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on Apple, hit the five-star review. We're being spammed with one-star reviews on Apple. We need you to fight on the other side. If you're listening on Apple, hit that five-star review, leave a comment, leave a review of the show. Uh, but really, I need you all on YouTube to hit the likes, uh, hit the comments. We're shooting for 5,000 likes today. That's how we beat the algorithm. We're shooting for 1,500 comments. That's how we beat the algorithm. All right, you know how we do a great show? We bring in the Korean Cosell uh, and, you know, because Korean Cosell makes me look smart, makes me sound smart. That's how we do a good show. We bring in someone less smart than me, someone that doesn't know as much about sports as me, and then I talk about sports and sound really terrific. Uh, so Steve, Co Steve Kim, Korean Cosell, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, Jeez, good okay. to have you. <laughs> Steve, I, well, let me start. I, I, let me start here. I don't want to stir yeah. in something that you know has really, but but I'm sure you agree with me that Jason Brown owes me an apology uh, for his Patrick Mahomes comments. I, I'm sure you agree with me on that. Uh, no, I really don't. And by the way, all, all your segments now remind me of New Edition. Um, you know, Mr. Telephone Man. Uh, there's a click on the other line. I mean, give me a break. Would you let the man have his opinion? I mean, give me a okay, look. Everyone has the right. This is part of the First Amendment. You are allowed to have yeah. an opinion, and no matter how bad it is, you're allowed to state. I was on with Coach JB earlier, and he did like his yeah. top 25 defensive linemen. You know who we had in there? Albert Hainsworth. Now I almost hung up on him. I almost, yeah, exactly. I had the exact same reaction, and I was going to hang up on him, except it's his show. But, hey, you want Albert Hainsworth in there, who literally quit like no one's business after getting a really big free agent deal. But, I, you know, again, I have bad opinions every decade. Let me have them. Man, I just hope I don't get hung up look, on here. That's the key. I, look, we had JB on yesterday. And something happened with the connection where he was freezing up, and then he just disappeared. I, I wanted him up. on the show and, and continue. The, the, right. the, the thing right. froze well, up, and we had to let him go. Yeah, uh, I think anyway. came that came in from Kansas City. I, I didn't know you were such a <laughs> homer still for the Chiefs. Good grief. The guy's got two Super Bowls, two MVPs. What's, you know, I actually talk. Crap in, in July. I actually agree with you to a large degree, but let the man have his opinion. And by the way, but I also, we can be nuanced about this. That game that he just played, he had 182 passing yards. I've said it for a oh, long time. If I had to go is, to the is NFL Kim starting draft, to freeze up? No, I'm not starting to freeze up because I'm are, just Are you chilling. starting to freeze up? All right. uh, call me EPMD. <laughs> you got to chill because look. I happen to agree with you. Patrick Mahomes is the most valuable player in football. He'd be my number one overall pick if you redrafted the whole league. But I do think it is a little bit premature when you start putting him in the Mount Rushmore of quarterbacks right now. Both can be true. Let me get you on a safer ground before you frustrate no, me. Like, not. What do you think of my Run DMC look here? This is some old school Adidas look here. What do you think of my Run DMC look? So that makes you Jam Master J. 
son Whitlock. I like that. I like that. Not bad. Not bad. All right. Uh, the combine is taking place in Indianapolis, and so that is leading to a lot of NFL draft talk and speculation. Uh, the Chicago Bears are, have the number one overall draft pick. They believe they have their quarterback in Justin Fields. Some people say, and I might be one of them, like Bryce Young out of Alabama, better than, has more upside than Justin Fields. If you were the Chicago Bears, would you hold on to that pick and take Bryce Young and try to move Justin Fields? Or would you trade that pick and try to acquire additional draft picks and, and stick with Justin Fields as your franchise quarterback? Jason, to me, it's clear. I hold an auction for that number one pick. I really do. I actually think Justin Fields is getting a bad rap. He had no help last year. Okay, so if you look at the Bears roster, what do they need? Everything. So who do they want? Everyone. So you got to parlay that number one pick into at least another first-round draft choice, maybe a starter, and some more draft capital. Because the bottom line is you're not just a player or quarterback away. And, Jason, as much as I like Bryce Young, I don't know at, at his size – how long he would last with that current Bears offensive line. Also, I don't know if he would really fit into a cold-weather environment. As of yet, the city of Chicago and that franchise has not acquiesced to Justin Fields' uh, <laughs> you know, his a request for a dome stadium. So in my view, look, if I thought Bryce Young was an Andrew Luck or a John Elway type of number one pick where it's a surefire, yes, that's my franchise quarterback, and I know what I'm going to get from him, I would, yes, I would jettison Justin Fields, but I actually think Bryce Young has some questions, and again, a lot of it has to do related to that size, and by the way, you choose Bryce Young, guess what, your wide receivers outside are still the exact same guy, I, my view would be this, if I'm the Bears, Let's give Justin Fields a shot to really develop, but let's surround him with some help. So here's the other side of that argument. And, and, and just, you don't have to totally agree, but just tell me if there's any kernels of truth in this. Isn't Justin Fields going into his third season, correct? I believe so, so, yeah. He's, yeah, he's just a year or two away from a new contract that he may or may not earn. But if I have a chance to get a Bryce Young on a rookie contract, isn't it easier then to spend money this year, next year, and moving forward to get all those pieces around you so that perhaps you can pull off what Jalen Hurts just did for Philadelphia in what? Is this, that wasn't this his third year as well? Yeah. Just made a Super Bowl run while still on a rookie contract. That seems to be the sweet spot for a franchise is to find a quarterback who you can build around and try to make it to a Super Bowl in his second, third, or fourth season rather than, let's say Justin Fields plays halfway decently next season and, and now you're going to be on the hook having to pay this guy a mountain of money that he may not be worth and, and you're still really no closer to a Super Bowl, I, I, I think 
if I'm one of these franchises or if I'm the Chicago Bears, I might roll the dice with a rookie quarterback on a rookie contract and, and try to buy the extra pieces I need rather than draft the extra pieces I need. You know, there's an argument for that. But, Jason, here's the thing. If you jettison Fields and you go with Bryce Young, now that looks like a total rebuild. So, and again, you are taking a risk that Philadelphia was able to build this incredible roster, right? And they had, it turns out, a one-year window because they have an inordinate amount of free agents that are probably going to leave, and a lot of them are quality starters. In, in my view... Fields has shown enough flashes. Look, he still needs a lot of development, but I'm going to say this again. A lot of the games where I saw Justin Fields, he had to play Superman, and I would say by the end of October, November, he looked wore out because it was not an easy style of quarterback. And I get it. You are rolling the dice either way, but I just think that if you get a good enough package where you get another first-round draft choice in the first half of the draft, you get a starter and you get more draft picks into the early to middle rounds, right? I, I think that's the safest way to go because in my view, and again, I don't know what the Bears management is thinking, Justin Fields has shown me enough. I'm willing to develop with him and grow with him. Again, I'm going to repeat myself. Bryce Young's size kind of worries me. What's Justin Fields' ceiling? Who's his comparable? Who, who is he two years from now, best-case scenario? I'll tell you what. If he was on that San Francisco 49er team playing in that Shanahan offense with his legs and his ability, people forget one thing about Justin Fields. And, again, he might be a product of that Ryan Day machine that he's created up there in Columbus. He can throw the ball. I, I am not saying he's the arm talent of Aaron Rodgers, but we are now – getting it a little bit wrong on field as a college player. Did he have athleticism? Yes. But was he a thrower first? Absolutely. And I'm just saying that if you surround him with the team like Jalen Hurts had, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to think if Justin Fields was on the Eagles, could he have similar success to what Jalen Hurts had last year? Believe it or not, I would actually say yes. All right, uh, that, that's that's a good argument. Those are that's something for me to think about. Uh, Nikolai Jokic, the Denver Nuggets center, do all everything player, seems to be on the verge of winning his third MVP trophy in a row. Steve, that would put him in the company of Larry Bird, Bill Russell, and Wilt Chamberlain. Mm. Larry Bird, Bill Russell, and Wilt Chamberlain. All three of those guys have to be in everybody's top 10 NBA players of all time. Uh, Nikolai Jokic will not be in anyone's top 10. Is, is he benefiting from a watered-down NBA where the players just don't care about the regular season, or is he a truly great player? Well, I think both can be true, but again, I, I give a guy credit that puts on the hard hat, packs a lunch, and actually does his job. Uh, of not going into a cold mine, not working at a steel mill, right? Uh, he plays basketball, and he actually is a professional. And I love the fact that he might actually do this three-peat for one reason. If I hear one more person say, could Larry Bird play in today's game? There's your answer. Because if Nikolai Jokic can put up the numbers, and again, it's a different style of play. You don't think Larry Bird, who was really about six nine and a half, 
You don't think he'd have success today? It drives me nuts when I hear that. But in a league where guys literally look at the schedule at the beginning of the year, this is what the mindset, how it's different. I truly believe when we grew up, Jason, in the 80s all the way up to about the early 2000s, players used to look at that schedule and they used to circle a date. Like I know for a fact the Lakers would say, okay, we're playing Boston here and there. And that used to happen all the time. The Knicks, Pistons, and Bulls would always circle, say, okay, these are the games. Think about this. Nowadays, guys get the schedule, and they circle the days they're going to take off, not knowing if they're going to be injured, not knowing if – I'm being dead serious. They literally plan their vacations like school teachers in the summer. And that mentality has infested the league, and I don't think you're ever going to fix it because that is now unfortunately – a part of the lowering of the bar. And if Jokic is the guy that says, you know what, it's an 82-game season, I plan, plan on playing all 82 or close to it, that alone in itself, and again, it's a lowered bar, that alone uh, should be lauded. He plays about 74, 75 games a year yeah. on yeah. average. He takes his days off as well. But, Jason, but he does seem to care Right, Jason, let me just say about the great Michael Jeffrey Jordan, what I loved about him. And we all saw the the, uh, the 30 for 30 last dance. When he broke his foot in the third game of his second season at Golden State, they tried to put him on a pitch count when he when he demanded to return. Remember what he told the Bulls? He said, oh, we're going to tank, huh? Said, if you tank, as soon as I'm a free agent, I'm out of here. I'm not doing it. And remember, they had some squabbles because the coach was under great pressure to, I think, play him seven minutes each half, right? And literally, Jerry Krause was threatening Jaws by having a stop watching. He played seven minutes and 14 seconds, right? What I loved about Jordan, and this carried on throughout his career, my fav- one of my favorite Jordan stories is that there was a time, I forgot what year, but he was definitely the biggest name in the sport, had already won MVPs. He had a turf toe, Jason, and those things are painful, Big toes can absolutely debilitate you as an athlete. So it was a game that I don't know if it was a playoff game, but the trainer said to him, Michael, if you want to play tonight, you don't have to, but if you want to, you got two choices. We could put on a looser fitting shoe, but you're going to look like Donald Duck, but it's not going to hurt as much. Now, here's the other thing, or we could put on a shoe that's a little bit too small for you normally, but it's going to set your toe But, Michael, you're going to be able to play the way you want if you can withstand the pain. So, Michael says, you know what? What does this game matter? Give me the big shoe. Give me the big shoe. He hated playing hindered, and he knew people came to see him. So, after the first television timeout, the great Jordan quote, he walks right over to the trainer and goes, come here. Give me the pain. That's pride. That is professionalism. And that's a league that people can support. What is going on today, I actually think there should be mass boycotts. I'm being dead serious about it. In fact, if you gave me a picket sign, I am more apt to actually have a picket sign and just take a couple of circle of laps around the crypto center than actually stay and watch a game. That's just me, though. Uh, Listen, you're slightly ahead of me, but I want to play a Charles Barkley clip. We got the Barkley clip of him Mm. talking about how disrespectful this load management thing is. Can can we play the, the Barkley clip? Is load management in today's NBA a big issue for Sir Charles Barkley? It's a huge issue. 
you know, uh, and Adam, and I love Adam. He's a great so guy. I. He's a great commissioner. So do but I. I think what what happened is I think he kind of went overboard trying to take care of the players. He's like, well, you guys don't want to do back-to-backs. We're going to kill most of the back-to-back. Now they get like a whole week for All-Star game. So he's trying to do everything possible to get these guys rest. You know, Stephen A., I don't think fans get mad if you're making 30 40 $50 million if you play basketball every night. But you can't make 30 40 $50 million and then sit out games. I think it's disrespectful to the game. I think it's disrespectful to the fans. Because like I say, these fans are paying their hard-earned money. And mm-hmm. like I say, especially, you know what's going to be crazy? In this next TV negotiating deal, we're going to have guys making $70, $80 million a year. Yeah. And they're going to be saying, wait a minute, you're going to make $70 million and you can't play basketball three or four days a week mm-hmm. with all the stuff. I mean, they fly private. They got the best medical stuff ever created. And I says, you can't disrespect the fans making 70, 80 million dollars and say, you know what, I can't play basketball four days a week. Mm. I mean, listen, it ain't like we should working in a steel mill, brother. I mean, if people working in a steel mill every day, I'm pretty sure they tired too. Yeah. But they go to work every day. Uh so yeah, I think load management is a big deal. I think Adam is gonna have to say, yo, man. I don't know. And listen, and I don't know the right or wrong answer, Stephen A. Yeah. Because I heard Steve Kerr said go down in games. Pretty 72. nice of him to take money out of all these players' pockets. Hey, know. listen, with some of these lesser players who don't make all that money, says, yeah, take uh, take 12 of my game checks. They're going to be like, no, yeah. no, no. I want them 82 games back quickly. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I like Charles. I'm okay with Stephen A. Smith. I, I hate the way they have to dance around yeah. Adam Silver, the commissioner, and talk about how great he is and blah, blah, But But the real thoughts are like, this guy's being way, way, way too soft with the players. The players are running the league. Ownership is getting run over. And who's really getting run over? Because ownership doesn't care. I, I just... The, the Milwaukee Bucks are selling for $3.4 billion? The Milwaukee Bucks? And so they don't care about the product. Fans are getting run over, and they're tolerating it. And, and it's one of the gr- greatest gimmicks being run in the world. They're feeding us SHIT product and hooking the fans in by saying, oh, but these guys are such great Americans and social justice warriors and fighters, and they really care about you. No, they don't. They care about China. They care about making as much money as they can while doing as little work as possible. And it's Adam Silver's fault. You know I love the Chuck Wagon. I I think he's one of the last honest voices. But uh, Charles, you cannot tell me that Adam Aluminum is a good commissioner. Have you seen the ratings? Have you seen the game-to-game ratings? In fact, the All-Star game is now in the dumps. Adam Aluminum has allowed this. So don't, come on. I, I, I laud Charles for being the one guy that's been out in front of the story by saying, no, no, this load management isn't right. A lot of these other reporters are afraid because they don't want to lose access. They don't want to take the social media heat. Um, they're afraid of their own shadow. They don't want to be called racist or anything of that nature. Maybe Charles has more of a license. 
but any commissioner that has allowed the ratings to get to where they are from what they once were, I'm sorry, aluminum is terrible. In fact, you know what? A couple weeks ago, Jason, me and you were talking, I kind of compared him, the way he capitulates, uh, Adam Aluminum, to the leader of France in the 40s. Honestly, you know what he is looking at him? He's Larry Coker. He's Larry Coker. He took over a Cadillac from Butch Davis. Greatest team ever in 2001. Five years later, uh, University of Miami still has not recovered from his run because he was a player's coach. You know what? As I get older, I hate player's coaches because they're soft and they get run over. And you're absolutely right. The player empowerment has now become complete anarchy. And he allowed that because of that soft, limp-wristed leadership of that guy right there. He has no guts, he has no toughness, and he is the cause of this. Adam Aluminum. I, I, I throw, uh, first it was Michelle Roberts, and now I forget who the woman they have in charge of the NBA Players Association. But it, it, again, it, it is soft leadership in all directions, from the players' direction, from the ownership, represented by Adam Silver. I got to give Brian Windhorse credit. Windhorse called it all out mm-hmm. on first take uh, with Stephen A. Smith. Let's play that clip. It's really not about the basketball. And over the last decade in the NBA, they have, there's been a steady erosion of interest and investment in the regular season. And Adam Silver has given a thumbs up to it the entire way. And it goes right over to All-Star Weekend. He has given the players less responsibility. They used to have to be there on Friday. Now they don't have to be there till Saturday. And by the way, several players didn't even show up this year until Sunday. That's right. They, he, he gave them, he you know, changed the schedule so that they would have three or four days after it so that you weren't penalized for being an all-star. So you could still go to Mexico or the Caribbean or wherever else you wanted to go and still have your time off. And still the game has completely fallen to pieces. It was 133 pointers taken in this game. It is essentially just a shooting display now. And Adam Silver doesn't care. He has totally said that this is fine. There is no pushback whatsoever. So if you continue to allow the players to do this stuff, I don't blame them. They're going to continue to do it. And if you continue to send a message to your fans, the regular season isn't important, and the NBA is about to do it again because they're about to ratify a collective bargaining agreement where they're going to create a midseason tournament that they're going to say is actually more important than the other other games. If you continue to tell your fans that these games don't matter and that your effort level is not expected, the fans are ultimately going to believe you. And that is, you know, there is a number of reasons why we have seen a fall off in ratings in the NBA over the last decade, but this is definitely a factor to it. And Mm. people can explain it away, but the reality is also the reality. I thought Windhorse nailed it there. Uh, It's, it's, I, I can't put my finger on it other than the way the media is controlled now and, and the leagues and the commissioners of the league have so much control over the media. But, but if any other league was in this sort of free fall, w- when baseball was losing its significance, people were allowed to talk about it. People yes. were allowed to be upset about the 1994 strike or 93 strike, I can't remember what year, 94, I think, the 1994 baseball strike that ended the season. People were allowed to be upset and, and call for new leadership. Now, 
people live in fear. Like Stephen A. Smith knows, well, I'm on that NBA countdown show, and if I go too hard at, at Adam Silver, he'll call my bosses and get me pulled off that. Charles knows the same thing. TNT, is, as much as they need him, he can only go so far. Everybody, the media is all in on it together. They think it's their job to market these leagues rather than to analyze them. And I, I'll give ESPN credit for giving Windhorse the space uh, to say a little something as he did there. But, but it, it's a thousand percent accurate. And, and eventually what you're going to see, what you've already seen, and it's why the three-pointer and the games are less physical and, and guys play less minutes and it's okay for guys to miss games eventually, he's talking about the fans are going to get the message. The players are the ones really getting the message that these games don't really matter and, and that winning really doesn't matter. The entire concept of sports is changing in me and your lifetime, Steve. It's all about the contract. That's all the players think about is how can I get to a contract? It's not how can I win a championship. It's not how I can make it to the Hall of Fame. It's not how I can be an all-time great player. It's how do I get to the contract? And that's a complete, that's a game of monopoly. That's not a, that's not a team sport that people are attracted to. If you look at the coverage that is afforded the NBA when their ratings dip compared to the NFL, you could clearly see the agenda. People are hoping and praying that the National Football League stranglehold on the Nielsen's ends, but it never happens. And any time that there's some sort of decline, it's a big story. And meanwhile, when NBA ratings start to get back to some normalcy, people trumpet that like it's the last episode of MASH. It's amazing. I mean, Jason, every year I see this in whatever newspaper, if people still read them, but I started realizing about a, about a dozen years ago that every year they have like the top 50 rated shows uh, on television for a given year, right? And one thing I started to notice, the NFL had at least seven or eight games in there from the Super Bowl to the playoffs, a couple of high-profile Monday night or Sunday night games. So right up there with the most popular shows and television with, with friends or whatever. But I, you know what thing I never see? I don't ever see any NBA basketball. In fact, I would love to see for the last 10 years the top 100 sporting events on television in terms of ratings. And I would bet that a preponderance of them, I would say at least 75% of the highest rated television sports programming blocks probably be, uh, belong to the National Football League because it's that dominant. But again, you're right, and these – People that actually cover the game, it's almost like they are muzzled. By the way, going back to Charles real fast, when he talks about how in the next CBA that the players are going to start receiving $70, $80, 90000000 million contracts. Are we sure about that? So the question really begins, what about the networks, TNT, ESPN, uh, what, whoever these networks are that are in partnership with the NBA, um, strategic partners, if you want to call them that, how do they feel about the diminishing audience and the player apathy that seems to be endorsed by the organizations? And this is, this is a numbers game. At the end of the day, they get into partnership with these leagues because they want to derive viewership. So if that is dwindling, are we absolutely sure we're going to keep seeing that these increase in salaries? That's the question that I have. 
I think we are, and I'm going to say probably the most controversial thing I've ever said on this show. Uh, I hope the YouTube algorithms, I don't know how they feel about anybody making World Trade Center references, but I'm going to make one here. Uh-oh. I think we are (laughs) because what we're witnessing in men's sports is a controlled demolition. The athletes don't realize it. No one does because everybody's just blinded by the amount of money they're making. But these leagues are being systematically destroyed and undermined. And they're going to they've pumped so much money into printed so much money, pumped so much money, inflated or deflated the value of money that yes, everybody on paper is gonna be making more and more money as the product gets worse and worse and worse and as they just destroy these leagues. The NBA is being destroyed. China wants it destroyed to the point that I think is like, I wonder if in 15 years if China's real plan isn't to bring the NBA to China. It failed in America. Bring that thing, and and LeBron and all these guys would hop on planes and move over to China because in China, now look, they won't bring their family or friends over there because their families and friends will get treated like uh, black people in China and they won't be nice. But the athletes, they'll be treated like kings. They'll get paid a king's ransom, uh, more money than than they're even making here. I, I, I honestly think we're witnessing a controlled demolition, not unlike what we le- uh, witnessed on <laughs> 9-11, and I don't say that yep. laughingly, anybody's family member w- was hurt by that, but I, I just gotta keep it real, you know. I, I, you know, I'm, anyway, I've been an Alex Jones fan for a long time. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, that may be a good note for us to end on. I've gotten us into so much trouble with that, but. Anyway, uh, you got any final thoughts? Uh, would you reach out to JB and, and tell him that uh, if he, any day he wants to come on this week and apologize? Oh, uh, God. Phone line's open. I think uh, I'm going to hang any, yeah, my, my final word is this. When it comes to the NBA, David Stern has yeah. to be rolling over in his grave. He, he really does. Uh, the, the man did some great work along, along with some great players like Jordan, Magic, Bird, that whole generation who really cared and had a sense of pride and honor. When I look at these NBA players, I don't think they have any honor. I, I really don't. I don't think yeah, they give you, a damn. I don't think they care. They have you, no professionalism. You, They're hard to root for. You just they reminded really me, You just re- when you hijacked the conversation and <clears throat> didn't what let I me do? finish my thought on <clears throat> Nikolai Jokic. Yeah, I know that's what you do. You didn't finish my point. I don't think it's a coincidence that the guy that's dominating the league is not from America. He's from Serbia. And he, he didn't grow up with our values. He doesn't think, take things for granted uh, the way that we do. I don't think that's a coincidence. I, if I'm an American-born player, I would be embarrassed that a guy from another country has come over here and is dominating our league to this point. He's, he's not the most talented guy in the league. He just cares more than everybody else in the league, virtually. And... and that's why he's dominant. It's an embarrassment. Uh, we'll end on that note, Steve, unless you got something you want to add. No, there. no, I'm good. You can hang oh, up right. on me now. You're good. Go ahead, hang yeah. up on me. You're yeah. good at that. All right. Yeah. yeah. All, right. <laughs> All right. Play some tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. Waiting for the countdown, coming off the breakdown, standing in line.